Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's May 26th, 1957. I have been accorded the privilege of introducing our guest panelist tonight. What's My Line is one of the most popular TV game shows on the air. He's a Hollywood star, a novelist, an adventurer. Tonight's celebrity panelist, Errol Flynn, the swashbuckling hero of legendary films like They Died with Their Boots On and Captain Blood. He's made more girlish hearts flutter even than our own panel moderator, John Daly. I give you Mr. Errol Flynn. Errol appears on the set, a handsome and debonair man who looks about 70 years old, but in fact is only 47, with years of hard living under his belt. His notorious life is used as a punchline throughout the show. What does Mrs. Cook have to do with handcuffs? Uh, well, she tests them to see that the lock works. No, that makes、All、it、right. seven down and three to go, Mr. Flynn. Would she be in charge of、uh, putting handcuffs on ladies? No, that's eight down and three to go, Mr. Flynn. <laughs> the audience laughs, laughs at the eternal playboy. Errol laughs as well. But if you were in the audience in 1957, you probably knew that. Not that long before, Errol Flynn had been charged with statutory rape. It was a case covered in newspapers everywhere, often overshadowing the news about World War II. While the trial proceeded, studio execs worried it would tarnish Flynn's box office numbers. It didn't. The public didn't seem to care. He was later found not guilty, to the relief of fans across the globe. Mr. Flynn. Is it used on the body, Mrs. Cook? Yes. Now try to think of what you've used on your body, because it's something you could use. <laughs> I could think of too many things. Leave me alone for a moment. And now here he was, just a few years later, in front of a room of people who had forgiven him, if they'd ever been turned off by him in the first place. A charming lady killer, morally fluid, wicked even. Who epitomized what many American men of the time wished they could be? A lot might have changed in the years after World War II: the burgeoning civil rights movement, new approaches to acting and filmmaking. But with Flynn still hanging around and still a hero to many, you could still see Hollywood had a long way to go when it came to how it treated women. Two years later, Flynn would be dead. At the age of 50, with his death a symbol of reckless masculinity passed, but the reckoning of Hollywood misogyny continues to this day. I'm Adam McKay, and this is Death on the Lot. Tonight, the wild story of Errol Flynn, who just kept hanging around as a symbol of Hollywood's past as it tried to navigate its future. This is episode seven. The swashbuckler.
The late 1930s in Hollywood was an all-out bacchanal. The Depression was slowly lifting, and according to some estimates, around two-thirds of all Americans went to the movies every week. Anything to escape the hardships of the past. Hollywood was no different. It was a company town filled with producers, directors, and actors who had risen from poverty and obscurity to a life of wealth, fame, and privilege. And sex. Lots of sex. Studios use sex and sex appeal to sell their products, and the losers were often women who wanted to break into the industry. It's an industry that was primarily based on looks and sexiness, and you had a lot of people coming out who were very green, who were desperate for roles. This is Hadley Mears, a Hollywood journalist and writer for this series. And so it was the perfect place for predators to be, to offer young, inexperienced women, and sometimes men, roles and fame and fortune in exchange for sexual favor. Well, if you're sexy to me, then maybe I'll think of you for this sexy part on camera. In May 1937, MGM held an extra special convention at Hal Roach's secluded ranch for its salesmen to celebrate their record-breaking year. 20-year-old dancer Patricia Douglas was one of the 120 young women, many teenagers, who had been cast as cowgirls for the evening. What it is, is a stag party, as it's called in the invitation. She thought she'd be performing. Instead, she discovered that they were there as party favors for the salesmen. This is your reward for being a hardworking man, is you get to dance and do whatever you want with all of these young girls. And during the course of the night, the guys all get wasted. Uh, There's a lot of gross uh, groping and abuse going on. An MGM salesman began harassing Patricia, forcing liquor down her throat. Feeling sick, she escaped outside. But the salesman followed her and brutally raped her. She is taken to a hospital that is privately owned by a doctor who is super cozy with MGM, and it's basically known as the MGM hospital. So he covers up the fact that she has been raped and says he could find no definitive proof. Studios had unlimited power. They were in cahoots with police, the mayor's office, the press, everyone. She sued and was destroyed in the process. She issues a formal complaint against her abuser. The DA, Byrne Fitz, ignores it. Why? Because he had been paid off by all the studios, but was particularly cozy with MGM, who was the responsible party. MGM and their fixer, Eddie Mannix, colluded with attorneys and pressured witnesses to commit perjury to ruin her reputation, claiming she was easy that she had VD, her case was dismissed, and her life ruined. So you kind of see it in every level of justice that the studios had a way to block justice for women being done every step of the way. In Hollywood in the 1930s, there was this atmosphere of boys will be boys, but it really mimicked the rest of the country, right? That kind of men's pursuit of women was a natural part of being a man. 
and that it was the women's job to uh, get rid of their advances or back off from what they were doing and not give them any leeway to make a move on them. There were no real consequences, none, zero, zilch. And that was a good thing for Hollywood's newest heartthrob, Errol Leslie Thompson Flynn. Errol Flynn was both a singular figure and a perfect product of 30s Hollywood. By 1938, he's the star of Warner Brothers' smash hit, The Adventures of Robin Hood, inspiring his band of merry men to greatness. It's every young boy's dream. I've called you here as free-born Englishmen. You've all suffered from their cruelty. The ear loppings, the beatings, the blindings with hot irons, the burning of our farms and homes, the mistreatment of our women. It's time we put an end to this. Robin Hood! He's so handsome, virile, graceful, devil-may-care, which, by the way, think about that term, pretty dark. Flynn moves like the talented athlete he was, commands your attention, laughs rakishly with blinding white teeth. Even though he's wearing a ridiculous curled pageboy wig, it's evident every second he's on screen, this is a man. This is a star. And he was so charming on screen. You know, that was, he had so much going for him. Incredible natural charm. Hollywood historian Robert Matson, co-author of Errol Flynn Slept Here and author of Errol and Olivia. So by the time he's 30, he is a top box office star in the United States and around the world. Not bad for a boy from Tasmania. Yep, you heard that right, Tasmania. He didn't come from Iowa. He didn't come from, you know, Kentucky or any... He came from Tasmania. He came from the South Seas. So I got born in a place called Tasmania. If you know where it is, by the way, you get a cigar. Here's Errol Flint. That little thing that looks like a heart or a kidney way south of Australia. That's why many people say I have such a great heart. He was born and raised in a place nobody on the planet even heard of. Basically, I mean, I remember Jack Warner telling everybody he was Irish because they knew they couldn't say he's from Tasmania. This is Errol Flynn's daughter, Rory Flynn. She's in her 70s now, and we got her to sit down and discuss her father's life and legacy. I'm going to be very personal here because I've had a lot of time to reflect on my dad. And I really feel that that he was uh, neglected as a child. I know he was. Rory Flynn's grandfather, Errol Flynn's father, was a respected zoologist and marine biologist. Errol's restless mother took off for Paris when he was 10. Maybe you'll notice a theme here. He lost his mother around the same time as one of our other subjects this season, James Dean. I mean, can you imagine your mother abandoning you at at the age of 10? You know, most people don't know this, but she left. She left, she said, I've had enough. I, don't, I can't stand Tasmania. And, um, and she said, I'm out of here. I'm going out, of, I'm not staying in this place. So this mischievous, unsupervised Errol ran wild. I tortured ducks and other animals, like all small boys, I suppose. I can't remember much about them. He ran up to this one mountain and he stayed there for a couple of days and the forest ranger found him up there, brought him back down to his father and and he says, oh, he wasn't here? Where, he didn't even know he was gone. 
the young Errol grew into an athletic, adventurous bum and got into some pretty shady schemes. Errol's grandson, Sean Flynn, says there's a famous family story about the time that Errol won a boat while gambling and started to sail it around New Guinea with a group of friends. And they would they would go to coast to coast and they'd box and they'd win money doing that, <laughs> you know, and then eventually got to New Guinea and, you know, ran, ran a tobacco plantation. He was running a tobacco plantation. I mean, that I, I, I mean, that, that, that that's that's insane to me. You know, he was he was running a, a plantation with it with slaves. Good Lord. I just have to highlight this for a second. Slaves. Yes, slaves. He had been, you know, he had been a jewel thief. He had been involved in a murder. He had run slaves. This was the 1920s, not the 1820s. But in the South Pacific, many plantations still ran on actual slave labor. It's insane. And a reminder that the past is not that long ago. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. By the time he got to Hollywood at age 25, he had already lived a lifetime. He even claimed to have killed a man, but that story was never proven. He held odd jobs, but he couldn't hold them for long because he was lazy and easily bored. And he was on the beach one day, and uh, this woman spotted him and said, you could be an actor. And she was the wife of a producer who was about to make a movie. Just like the hundreds of future Hollywood actors, Errol was plucked from a rather shabby life to become an idolized superstar. He was soon on his way and headed to England and then Hollywood. He was a rebel. He was unique. He was different from all the other actors. The first part he played in Hollywood was as a corpse, a man who gets murdered in, in a Perry Mason mystery. He would later say, that was my best work, you know, as a corpse under a sheet. Actually, playing a dead body is harder than it looks. Terry Kaiser, who played the dead body in Weekend at Bernie's, is a very talented actor and a lifelong member of the actor's studio. He actually won an Obie Award in the 60s. Okay, usually I interrupt myself and I say that's not true. In this case, that's true. Moving on. He was fearless on camera. He didn't care what he said or did. And he thought, I could be an actor. This is easy enough for me to do. He was everything a pre-war man wanted to be. And on screen, he was powerful. He was alive. Your ship's sinking, Captain. Then we shall drown together. Brave and impractical. 
How English are practical people. I have no intention of drowning with you. He could fill the genres of, let's say, he could do the westerns. He could do the war hero. He could be the swashbuckler. Then you do love me, don't you? Don't you? And he could be that romantic comedy guy. You know I do. Well, that's different. You know you're very impudent. Me? You are. And I don't know any other actor that could do all three. I don't think that there's ever been another star that has captured that niche uh, in Hollywood history. Uh, and he had the acting chops when he applied himself to back it up. Flynn was just as alive in his personal life. He was a hard-drinking stud, a cock of the walk, as they used to say back then. He was a fighter, a prankster, and Flynn fit right into the free-for-all that was 1930s Hollywood, where self-made legends partied like there was no tomorrow. Sexual freedom reigned, and gossip was at a premium. One of his best friends and partners in chaos was movie star David Niven. Years later, he'd read a glorious memoir of Hollywood's golden age called Bring On the Empty Horses. It contains endless stories and gossip about Errol. Niven died in 1983, but luckily he made recordings of some parts of his memoir. In pre-war days, Errol was a strange mixture. A great athlete of immense charm and evident physical beauty, he stood legs apart, arms folded defiantly, and crowing lustily atop the Hollywood dung heap. But he suffered, I think, from a deep inferiority complex. He was not a kind man, but in those careless days, he was fun to be with, and those days were the best of Flynn. And for many in town, he was the one to party with. He was an avid sailor and was one of the main reasons Catalina Island became the destination spot it is today. There's a culture of people that go out there and they anchor up and they have a great time. They barbecue and um, have, a, have an awesome time. He was one of the first people to make that a popular thing. Along for the ride were usually a few very beautiful, very young women who Errol often knew very little about. When people would ask if he knew the age of these girls, he'd get defensive. He once said, who approaches a prospective sweetheart by asking her to whip out her birth certificate or driver's license or show a letter from her mother? Movie star Veronica Lake recalled a party at Flynn's Mulholland Drive house. Quote, there was the usual evening swim with a few of the guests nude, she recalled. Errol had stocked the house with an assortment of young and luscious starlets, and they were available for any of his male guests who felt a sudden urge. It went further than that. According to talk show host Joe Pine, the notorious Mulholland Drive house was a veritable fuck palace, and Pine claimed to have seen it all. One room that... Uh that starts by you go into a closet and you come up through a trap door in the ladies' room. <laughs> uh, plus uh, another room that had a uh, one-way mirror, if that's what they call them, where you can look through one side. And that was uh, the ceiling of one room where uh, Earl Flynn used to consider it uh, uh, kind of fun to, to go up and look down at uh, people who were in various uh, amorous stages of uh, making love. 
and uh, indeed used to entertain a number of his friends by catching somebody in an unwitting position below there. Errol was a cat, but also in his own way, a family man. He had four children in all. And by the way, quick sidebar, his first son, Sean, tragically disappeared in Cambodia while working as a photojournalist during the Vietnam War, which is probably a whole other podcast on its own. But his daughter Rory is still here and has had to wrestle with the many sides of Errol Flynn. She certainly remembers the mischievous, fun dad that Errol could be. He'd take us out to dinners. He'd play tricks. I remember we went, would go to Imperial Gardens, and he would, you know, steal the, 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 those little ceramic cups and stick them in our pockets and see if we got caught. He'd sign checks, you know, he'd sign dinner check, you know, a check with somebody else's name. And they wouldn't even look at it, you know. They would just, he would just. So he was a prankster and um, and a charmer and all of that. That's not to say that Rory Flynn doesn't understand her father's sexual reputation or the fallout. He was a Lothario. His affairs with women were infamous and often predatory. When you are a superstar like that, I mean, how can you, anybody be your equal? I don't know. You know, I know that that's what I've always searched for, was equality in my relationship. But... You know, in those days, the woman just kind of had babies and cleaned the kitchen. So maybe Arrow realized that his behavior was kind of awful, or maybe not. But his home studio, Warner Brothers, certainly didn't seem to mind. I think that the studios really embraced the fact that he had this devil-may-care attitude because it made really good press and great copy. I think the studios probably liked Errol's reputation because it made him intriguing, it made him dangerous. It fit with his image as this sexy swashbuckler, right? This kind of ravager of women. It was a good thing for the studios until it wasn't. He didn't have many examples around him of better ways to act. In his mind, probably he was being the ideal man. Errol idolized another Hollywood icon of caddish masculinity, the massively famous and infamous John Barrymore, who foreshadowed the destruction wrought by men allowed to live life with zero consequences. I never quite understood Errol's hero worship of John Barrymore. David Niven, again writing in his book, Still of blazing talent and unquestioned, if somewhat blurred profile, John was the scion of the legendary Barrymore Drew acting family, known for noble, heroic roles in famous productions of Shakespeare's play. But like Flynn, he was also famous for his partying and his scandalous love affairs. He seemed to go out of his way to shock and be coarse. He was also conspicuously unclean and often smelled highly. And by the late 1930s, he was an alcoholic cautionary tale, a romantic symbol of wasted talent, a man who was honest that he was selfish, admitting, quote, it's easier to play a noble character on stage and leave the nobility with the clothes and the makeup in the dressing room than to be a nice person offstage. Near the end of Barrymore's life, Flynn temporarily moved his drunken hero into his notorious party pad, a Mulholland mansion high in the Hollywood Hills, and chaos ensued. Barrymore was so far gone, the last weeks of his life, you know, he's peeing out the window 
Um, he's, he's dirty and disgusting. Flynn still loves him, but he's driving Flynn crazy. Then he dies, and there's this whole story of how the corpse was hauled up to Mulholland Farm by Flynn's friends and scared Flynn to death, which I do believe is true because it's just crazy enough to be true. Yes, that's correct. In his biography, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, Flynn claims that director Raoul Walsh bribed the undertaker to let him take Barrymore's body on a little trip to Flynn's favorite chair at Mulholland House, where Flynn found his deceased buddy sitting in eternal repose. And you thought my Weekend at Bernie's reference was gratuitous. It was gratuitous. Barrymore died in May 1942 at the age of 60. But within a few months, his protege, Flynn, would also be in the fight of his life. The golden age of Hollywood wasn't so golden for women off screen. And on screen, it wasn't much better. Although in many ways, roles for women in the late 30s were wildly progressive. Think screwball comedy heroines, tough as nails career gals. When it came to portraying the relationship between men and women, the men almost always had the power. On screen, women were negged, punished for their independence, and often victims of what we would now term date rape. And that's how the industry ran as well. It went beyond sex, beyond boys being boys. It was about power. Who had it and who did not? There was an inherent barter system going on between producers, actors, directors, and a lot of these young, vulnerable women. Predators flourished in this system, and women learned to play the game. And women knew certain producers, you could get a part if you did things with them and did things that maybe you weren't comfortable with. You know, you knew that if you went into so-and-so's office and did what he asked you to do or accepted his advances, whether you wanted to or not, you would maybe get a contract. For women trying to break into Hollywood, there was humiliation at every turn. Even future Flynn co-star Betty Davis, the Betty Davis, was subjected to a humiliating ordeal when she first came to Hollywood in the 1930s. She recalled the incident to Dick Cavett. They lay me. Now, at that age, and I want to tell you, in 1930, I was the Yankeeest, modest virgin that ever walked the earth. So they lay me on a couch, and I tested 15 men. <laughs> They all had to lie on top of me and give me a passionate kiss. Oh, I thought I'd die. I just thought I'd die. There wasn't even a language surrounding the sexual abuse and harassment that was going on at the time. Women didn't even have the language to say what was happening to them. You know, there's this story about the movie star Loretta Young, who uh, famously had a secret child with Clark Gable. And Loretta didn't realize until she was 85, she was watching Larry King and someone was talking about date rape. And she turned to who she was with and said, that's what Clark did to me. She had no idea that she hadn't been responsible for what had been done to her. And she saw it as her moral failing, not his. He was just being a man. This attitude wasn't surprising since the most notorious predators in Hollywood were often the ones who ran the studios. 
Jack Warner, the head of Flynn's studio, Warner Brothers, was a notorious power-hungry philanderer, rumored to summon starlets on the WB payroll into his office for sex. He was also known to judge an actress by asking colleagues point-blank if they'd had sex with her. But remember, studio heads had a secret superpower. They were in cahoots with the LAPD, the press, and most importantly, the DA's office. The studios would cover up all of the shenanigans of their stars, and the DA would help them out in exchange for campaign contributions. Cases like the Patricia Douglas case proved how effective this tactic was. There's this chilling effect over all of Hollywood because it is well known that you will not be protected by anybody in government, by anyone in the press, and certainly not by the police, because they don't have any interest in you. You have no power. You can't give them anything. Who can give them something is these studios who are making buckets and buckets of money in a global depression. But things started to change in the 1940s. The war was on. The studio system was in its last blaze of glory, and women were running the home front. During World War II, women all of a sudden have to take on these traditional men's roles, right? Women become Rosie the Riveter. They're taking care of the home. They're working in uh, munitions factories. They're playing baseball. They're doing all of these, quote, manly, unquote, things. And they're celebrated for that. And what's more, there was a new district attorney in Los Angeles. So things start to change a little bit uh, because there's a new DA in town and his name is John Dockwaller. And he had kind of run as this candidate who was gonna clean up this corrupt system in LA, which was totally impossible. And he was running against DA Fitz, this notoriously corrupt figure in the pocket of not only Hollywood, but also a lot of people say the mob. Not surprisingly, Warner Brothers had allegedly backed Fitz during the campaign, and now Dockweiler was out for revenge. He found the perfect target in Warner Brothers' number one sex symbol, 33-year-old Errol Flynn. He doesn't focus in on the biggest predators, I would say, or the predators who actually had the most power in Hollywood. He focuses in on a really easy target, who is Errol Flynn. Why was Flynn a particularly easy target? Well, you see, Errol had a predilection for teenagers. He's attributed with the famous and incredibly gross quote, I like my whiskey old and my women young. One afternoon he said, come on, sport. I'm going to show you the best-looking girls in Los Angeles. We headed down Sunset Boulevard. They should be coming out any minute now, he said, and stopped the car opposite the Hollywood High School. Out came the girls, and they were an eye-catching lot with their golden California suntans, long, colt-like legs, and high, provocative breasts. Flynn sighed and shook his head. Jailbait, he said, jailbait, San Quentin quail, what a waste. He never had a very strong moral compass through his whole life. He was such a mixed bag. He, he would do these horrible self-destructive things, but he was at the very last moments of his life, he was charming as hell. So Flynn was an easy mark for Dockweiler. He symbolized all that went on behind Hollywood's closed doors. And unlike many hypocritical stars with their fake marriages and pristine public images, 
He was open about it, not pretending. The perfect fall guy for a corrupt system. He is a controversial character, certainly, but um, it's, it's all kind of out on the table. <laughs> so the DA office knew there had to be a charge they could bring against Flynn. While his daughter Rory acknowledges her father's problematic relationships, she does not believe it extended to rape. He obviously had women all over him. He never had to rape anybody or any of that. But the LADA office begged to differ. And it was one of those famous excursions to Catalina Island where they found their case. According to a 16-year-old dancer, Peggy Satterley, she joined Errol on his boat, the Sirocco, on a trip to Catalina in August of 1941. On that trip, she claimed Flynn spiked her drink before raping her. Another aspiring actress named Betty Hansen soon came forward with a similar story. He goes to this party, and this girl fresh from the bus from... Kansas or someplace in the Midwest, comes over and sits on his lap and says, I want to be in pictures. And so Errol never lets an easy opportunity pass him by. The next thing you know, they have sex. Doc Weiler is the new DA, and he puts his foot down, and he nails a star, and the star he nails is Errol Flynn because he finds out about Peggy Satterley in the boat, and he finds out about Betty Hansen at the party a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old, and Flynn is charged with statutory rape. Three cases, three counts of statutory rape. Doc Weiler had his man, the perfect guy to prove that unlike previous DAs, he was not beholden to the studios. Flynn was hauled before the court. And it becomes like the the case of the 1940s. You know, it's the, the show trial of the 1940s, this Hollywood star who gets headlines over Hitler and Goring in World War II. You know, headlines over the Battle of Midway. Is Errol Flynn accused of rape? Flynn hired the most famous defense attorney in Hollywood, Jerry Geisler. He was the go-to attorney if you were in trouble in Hollywood because he was this paternal father figure, this gentle-looking man. He was very quiet on the stage of a courtroom. He could hold a... Uh, a jury spellbound, and he, he, with just the slightest look or the slightest nuance in his voice, he would command a jury and command an entire courtroom. Warner Brothers was in a panic. When Errol Flynn was uh, charged with statutory rape, Warner Brothers was terrified. <laughs> Warner Brothers said, geez, we got to rush his next picture out right away because they had one that was in post-production, and they rushed it straight out because... They thought he was going to be box office poison. But then a curious thing happened. It didn't do anything to his box office, and that made Warner Brothers really take a pause. And it's like, okay, you know, we don't need to be so scared because it's like people are taking this in stride. Teenage boys and servicemen held up Flynn as their hero. Newspapers noted that even conservative areas of the country, especially in the South, Errol Flynn pictures were not only not pulled, but more popular than ever. When the trial started at Los Angeles Superior Court in January 1943, it became a media sensation. Over the 20-day trial, women turned up to the courtroom to swoon, ripping at his suit and yelling for autographs. And of course, the women accusing him found their reputations shredded. 
David Niven seems to have shared the public's regressive opinions. The conviction carried a sentence of five years. Looking back on many weekends aboard Scirocco, I could not remember any crew members flashing their birth certificates as they trooped expectantly up the gangplank. It seemed obvious that Flynn was being framed, and young America was aroused. William F. Buckley, Jr., then at prep school, told me later that he had joined the ABCDEF, American Boys Club for the Defense of Errol Flynn. Errol was also on his best behavior during the trial. He's on his A game. He's sober every day in court, and he is polite. Not surprisingly, Errol was found not guilty on all charges after the jury deliberated for 13 hours. And had he been found guilty, he had a plane gassed up and ready to take him out of the country. But he didn't need to. So he survives. And even though he was guilty as hell, he claimed he didn't have sex with either woman. But come on. In his memoir, Flynn basically admits as much. In the world of day-to-day common sense, everybody knew that the girls had asked for it, whether or not I had my wicked ways with them. After the trial and his acquittal, he's more popular than ever because of this whole in-like-Flynn vibe, you know? Ah, yes, in-like-Flynn, that famous phrase. It was coined to celebrate Flynn's way with the ladies. The term in like Flynn, which is still used today, uh, resulted from that trial, uh, and that means scoring with a young girl. Today, he would have been canceled. I don't think there's any question about it. It's not that people were not canceled in the 40s and 50s. It's just that being responsible for crimes against women didn't quite rise to the level of cancelable offense. You were more likely to be ruined if you were gay or a person of color moving to the wrong neighborhood or someone who supported civil rights or, horror of horror, a communist. But despite his incredible luck, it didn't matter. Errol, like his hero Barrymore before him, seemed intent on canceling himself. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The years following the rape trial were hard for Flynn and the industry which had lionized him. There was genuine disruption in Hollywood, method acting, the rise of TV, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which took aim at Hollywood and resulted in the infamous blacklist, even some progress on race. Also, the breakdown of the studio system, which had protected stars like Flynn, This new era was serious, straight-laced, cookie-cutter. There starts to be a sense of the party's over. You know, during World War II, the party was over. As the men come home, everything totally changes. In communist countries, 
women had to work, women had to send their children to these state-run daycares. But here in America, we had feminine women who, you know, wore skirts and uh, high heels while they worked in the home and raised the children and cooked all these delicious meals and took care of their husbands and gave him a cigar and a scotch when he got home. In many ways, women were more pigeonholed than they'd been in decades. So the ideal of what a woman was really regressed to a level it hadn't really since the 1920s, of women as feminine, decorative, these kind of feminized Madonna creatures that one was supposed to protect and love and be loyal to, and women were supposed to be totally happy in that role. Women's roles in Hollywood, and especially on TV, reflected this change. There were many more perfect homemakers and far fewer ballsy roles perfected by the likes of Betty Davis. Hollywood was fitting in with the cultural zeitgeist. They were a family town, respectful, traditional, and above all, American, at least publicly. But it was hypocrisy at its finest. Privately, there were still the casting couches, the sexual harassment, the wild parties, the dirty deals. Sound familiar? Flynn represented a pre-war type of masculinity that was starting to be questioned by many. There was a generational divide emerging here vis-a-vis what it means to be a man. So roles for men in post-war America, they do start to shift. And they, I, in my opinion, become a lot less fun or charming. And instead, there's a new kind of man in town. And that kind of man is someone like Dean, who's sensitive and sweet and soft. Or someone like Elvis Presley, who's sensual and, and sexy and has those puppy dog eyes. They're not these who he-man masculine men as much. But just like men in films previously, they still have all the power in their relationships with women on screen. But Flynn continued to be part of the popular consciousness. Flynn might have been a lot of things, but he was not a hypocrite. He continued to party, but it just wasn't the same. He was clearly an addict um, and struggled with addiction in a time before um, addiction was considered to be addiction, right? Um, although even, even um, back then, they were trying to curb his drinking. You know, Jack Warner um, <laughs> famously uh, told him he could not bring any more vodka into his trailer on set, um, which made Errol very angry. And so he started injecting oranges with vodka and bringing them to set. And then he would eat the oranges on set. He had lost his self-respect and his pride. He would be either drunk or drugged by noon. It would be cocaine, it would be heroin, it would be morphine, it would be whatever he could get. By the early 1950s, Flynn had parted ways with Warner Brothers and was a wreck of toxic masculinity. He started making pictures in Europe and some of them were really bad. And, and that's when he did become a caricature. He started to feel like a buffoon, and he started to act like a buffoon. He traveled around the world looking for action, adventure, most importantly, money, and fuel to feed his wanderlust. 
I suppose some of us are cave dwellers, some of us live in houses, and some of us like to be loose-footed. I'm a rambling man. He did that documentary, The Cruise of the Zocco, where he took scientists down to the Galapagos Islands. And, you know, he he went searching for gold, these shipwrecks. He, I remember him bringing back coins where he'd gone diving. But there were many casualties in Flynn's constant pursuit of pleasure. The great thing about Errol was you always knew precisely where you stood with him because he always let you down. This damage extended to his kids' lives as well. I would describe him as uh, not a good father. <laughs> I mean, if you want, um, you know, if you want a good father, you want a father who's there all the time, and you want somebody who's involved in you and, and what you're doing and this and that. So, of course, we got him sporadically, but when we got him, he was wonderful. Much like Barrymore before him, Flynn was held up as a relic of a reckless age. Flynn has a career resurgence, and the reason for that is he has now become a caricature of what men used to be. What the ideal man used to be, that is now Errol Flynn. Flynn was now playing broken-down, drunken ladies' men, wistful for a past when boys could be boys, in films like The Sun Also Rises. A bunch of bloody fireworks all fizzling. That's us. He even played John Barrymore in 1958's Too Much Too Soon. And his love for the man was as strong as ever as he repeated his sad trajectory almost to a T. Errol was now a legend, and his famous exploits were met with a wink and a nod by the public. Despite it all, the public still let Errol be Errol. In fact, it was on the set of Too Much Too Soon that Errol Flynn would meet his last victim. Enter 15-year-old Beverly Adland and her hard-bitten, one-footed stage mother, Florence. He met this 16-year-old uh, dancer, another underage girl. By now, he just didn't care. This girl adored him. And Flynn was really far gone and was abusive to this girl. In classic predatory style, he invited Beverly to a late-night audition. And her mother, well aware of the Hollywood game, was only too happy to oblige. This is Beverly Adlin in an interview seven years after Flynn's death, where the interviewer, Joe Pine, mercilessly shames her. She felt this was all right, and because of the love we had for each other, uh, that what society thought really didn't matter. Um, my point of view, it's funny, I find myself uh, taking my niece out, who is 15, and uh, I look at her and I say, my God, you know, I was her age. Flynn openly flaunted his disturbing relationship with Beverly, shacking up with her on his estate in Jamaica, starring with her in the film Cuban Rebel Girls, and drinking himself into a stupor and creepily joking that Beverly was, quote, getting too old for him. In 1957, he was arrested at the perfectly named Ballyhoo Ball for drunkenness. He exclaimed, quote, I want the whole world to know the injustice of this deed, that Errol Flynn was arrested as a drunk before he even got to the bar. 
Thrown in the Lincoln Heights jail, he was greeted by fellow inmates who hailed him as a hero, chanting, Viva El Captain Blood. Those were his bad years, the last couple of years of his life. By that time, he was, you know, he'd ruined his liver, he had tuberculosis, he had, he'd, he'd had malaria. He'd, I mean, how that body stayed alive as he smoked and drank and everything else he did, you know, it's amazing that it lasted uh, 50 years. Ironically, one of the last roles he wanted to play was one he would have been perfect in. He wanted to play that role in Lolita. You know, because he thought, damn, that's me. You know, they've nailed me. But his time was running out. I remember seeing him get off the plane. And I'm going, I didn't even know it was him. Niven remembered his last encounter with his old friend as well. In 1958, I met Errol by chance in London. Ten years had passed since I'd last seen him, and it was a joyful reunion. We lunched largely on the Puy Fumé at a little place in Soho, and I cannot pretend that I was not shocked by the physical change. He'd been doing himself grave damage. The face was puffy and blotchy, and the hand that had once held the bow of Robin Hood could not have put the arrow through the Taj Mahal at ten paces. In October 1959, a weary Flynn arrived at a party. Feeling better after a doctor he had just met gave him a mysterious shot, he charmed the guest before going to lie down. Around 15 minutes later, Adlin went to check on him, According to one report, she ran out screaming that he had turned black. She broke down, banging her head against a railing, utterly hysterical. Errol Flynn was pronounced dead of a massive heart attack at the age of 50. Flynn had once joked, if anybody comes to my funeral, I'll cut them out of my will. At his funeral at Forest Lawn's Church of the Recessional, Jack Warner recalled a man who, quote, laughed at himself but never at acting or his audience. When Flynn dies, his obituaries are largely tongue-in-cheek and celebratory. You know, there's one that has the headline, Out Like Flynn with a Grin, and there's a lot of celebrating in his obituaries of all of his exploits and all these really actually very sad drunken antics and these disturbing relationships with young women are kind of written about in this gossipy, scandalous, fun, tongue-in-cheek way, you know, that Errol loved to laugh at himself, that, that he knew who he was and he was cool with it, so we should be too. But the mess Flynn left behind was no laughing matter. A battle over his estate dragged on and on. His children were left without a father. I actually felt very abandoned at the age of 12 because when he died. And um, it was like we were getting really close at that time, all of us. You know, as we were getting older, he would like to be with us more. And he was getting older and and, uh, wanted to know, know about us. Errol Flynn may be gone, but the problematic questions his life raises endured. I mean, he still has star days on TCM where it's marathons of his movies. And he's still kind of seen as this swashbuckler, as this sexy, charming, caddish guy. And 
The thing that's complicated about Flynn, and this is a greater conversation about so many of the men who had really disturbing private lives as predators, is he was really talented. A lot of his movies really hold up today. They're still a lot of fun to watch. When Errol is at his best, he is so much fun to watch. You can recognize this dynamic today. Even as we have started to call out misogyny in Hollywood, we still find a way to look the other way if someone is just that charming or that magnetic. So the thing is, we don't just turn a blind eye to someone's flaws if they're famous enough or they're talented enough. We do something more. It's sometimes the flaws themselves that we find really charming and endearing. And I think that's what happened with Flynn. And if you look at now, it's what's happening still. How many men (laughs) through the centuries have gotten away with things by basically being like, oh, shucks, I just can't help it. I'm just a little rascal. The Me Too movement has slowly pushed the greater issue of sexism in Hollywood to the forefront. New predators are being unmasked yearly. Look at Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Bill Cosby, Roman Polanski. Some of this is a result of a genuine grassroots movement led by women. Some of it is for more cynical reasons. As Wall Street has finally come to Hollywood, the film industry disrupted by streaming, you get the sense, more than anything, that these new conglomerates are worried that sexual harassment liabilities will hurt their bottom line. So yes, there's less tolerance for the boys-will-be-boys of the 30s and 40s, but only so much. A lot of these deeper dynamics remain the same. In 2002, it was alleged that an LAPD captain had been tipping off CBS about sexual assault allegations against Chief Executive Les Moonves. This is a town that's still built on power. And it's a town that can't quite seem to shake its obsession with stardom and sex and debauchery. Something Errol was a master at was kind of that winking at the camera, winking at the audience, winking at the public, saying, I'm just a cad, I'm just a bon vivant, I can't help it. It's still there, lurking just beneath the surface, like it was back when Errol Flynn was yucking it up on What's My Line just a decade after he escaped rape charges, finding his way back onto TV back into America's hearts with a wink and a smile. Which makes you wonder, when's the next bad boy plagued by charges of sexual harassment gonna get booked on The Masked Singer? Unlock all episodes of Death on the Lot ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of the show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop. That's not my phrase, by the way, but I'm going to say it. They get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe 
at the top of the Death on the Lot show page on Apple Podcasts or visit GetTheBinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Death on the Lot is a Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's executive produced by Jody Avergan, Claire Slaughter, Harry Nelson, and me, Adam McKay. Episodes were written by Brian Steele and Hadley Mears and edited by Jody Avergan. Our managing producer was Jennifer Siegel, and talent producer was Catherine Shoemaker. Producers were Shane McKeon and Kendra Hanna, with additional production support from Jordan Allen and Zaley Mahone. Consultants on the show were Justin Geldzahler and Sarah Mathis. Episodes were fact-checked by Matt Giles and Tom Cody. Our music is by Beacon Street Studios. Episodes were mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. I'm your host, Adam McKay. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death on the Lot. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hey, it's your your pal and your chum, Adam McKay, with a couple of thoughts about this episode and, of course, about the episode that's coming up next. And, folks, we made it to the end of this season. We have one more episode left. The Errol Flynn story has so many what-the-fuck moments in it, but the next story tops it all. It's sort of like the Flynn story. You know, when we were making it, we had a really hard time figuring out what details to keep, which theme it could connect to, because it was so layered and rich. And it's one of the fun things about making this series is that because it's Hollywood, any episode can connect to almost any of the themes from race to class to gender, violence, fame. And our final episode, without a doubt, contains all of that and a few other themes that we were surprised to see show up uh, in this season. But on the face of it, it's just a crazy, insane story. Uh, John Wayne still hanging around in the 50s, still always trying to be John Wayne, and instead he gets roped into one of the worst movie concepts ever.
I don't want to say anything more if you don't know this story especially. Uh, But come back for our final episode, The Story of the Conqueror. Paper.